<laughs> Good morning, everyone. Thank you all for making the effort to be here both in person and online with it being Memorial Day weekend. I'm sure everyone has, has plans going on. So thanks for coming. This is nominally a talk about right effort, the next fold in the eightfold path that we've been discussing. I think right effort's a bit of an interesting fold in that it really relates, it's really about all the other folds. I mean, the whole eightfold path kind of relates to one another. If you kind of think of the wheel turning, all the spokes are turning, not just any one of them. But I think right effort especially is kind of really about the other folds. Uh, Buddha himself kind of just, when he was defining right effort, just said it was putting right effort towards the other folds in the eightfold path. And so while this is about right effort, we're also gonna be talking a little bit about maybe what that effort can look like when applied to other folds in the path. When we first started talking about the Eightfold Path, Mado offered an interpretation of the path as being one that doesn't really lead anywhere, which when I first heard that was kind of made me, <laughs> had made me think because it's kind of not the, it's not the standard, or at least not the standard description of it that I've seen um, and, and have, have thought of before, especially within the Four Noble Truths. They're kind of presented linearly as there's suffering, there's causes of suffering, there's the end of suffering, and there's the path that leads to the end of suffering. So I was kind of like, well, what's, you know, what's, what's going on here? Um, this path doesn't lead anywhere, why do we put in effort to walk the path? And I think actually that this ties in nicely with a question that Dogen asked as a young Buddhist monk, which was if we're all fundamentally enlightened, why do we need to do anything? Why do we need to practice? You know, why not just hang out and just be, you know, copacetic and so if in this you know if this path doesn't go anywhere you know what are we doing why put in the effort to practice and the answer that dogen offered us was that practice is enlightenment that they're not separate there's not you can't really pull them apart that we don't practice to become buddha we practice as buddhas and that all of us intrinsically have Buddha nature and the way that naturally manifests is practice. And Dogen really emphasized Zazen here. So I was kind of thinking that maybe we could look at the Eightfold Path in a similar way. It's not necessarily a path that leads to liberation from suffering. It's what liberation from suffering looks like. So we're not walking the path to liberate from suffering, it's just when we're liberated from suffering, this is how we naturally behave. All these rights that come up, just kind of a natural part of our basic nature that comes up. And so it's, again, it's not that there isn't a path and that there isn't liberation from suffering, it's not that there isn't enlightenment, there isn't practice. It's just none of them are separate from one another. They're all part of the same thing. And this is, Mado mentioned, this path is an example that the noble ones have left us. And so I wonder if 
we can, as we, you know, walk the path in our own lives, we can lay down an example for those that come after us and that maybe one day we will be the noble ones that, that we have learned about. I think Dogen uh, talks, has a nice little story in the Genjo Koan about this. There's a Zen master named Mayu who's sitting around and banning himself. A monk comes up to him and asks, Master, the nature of wind is permanent and there is no place it does not reach. Why then do you fan yourself? And Mayu replied, although you understand the nature of wind is permanent, you do not understand the meaning of its reaching everywhere. Monk asked, what is the meaning of its reaching everywhere? And Mayu just kept fanning himself. So if I'm understanding what Dogen is relating with this story, it's that the Dharma, the teachings, is being expressed by everything around us, including us, all the time. That everything fundamentally has Buddha nature. That there's just enlightenment all around us, right under our noses. And yet, we have to fan ourselves because we forget, because we act not really in accordance with that all the time. Because life's complicated, it's messy. It's very easy to forget and we've been practicing living a different way for a very long time. So we really have some, we have some habits. I think uh, Shunryu Suzuki had a nice little quote about this, which was, you're perfect just the way you are, but you could use a little bit of improvement. And so we have to make an effort to practice, to turn the wheel, to keep the wheel turning. It doesn't turn on its own. We have to put energy into it and effort. I think that in our tradition, in the Soto school, the heart of our practice is Zazen or Shikantaza, which we chanted and heard a little bit about this morning from Coben. I think that this is really at the hub of the wheel, the center of the wheel. And it's what kind of injects the energy into our practice and keeps that wheel turning in our lives. And as we heard about this morning that Shikantaza is not about becoming a better person. It is about the actualization of what we are already. This path that doesn't lead anywhere. We don't have to go. We don't have anywhere that we need to go. And then Coben also reminds us that continuous awakening is nothing but our basic nature. That we just always come back to, even if we you know, maybe aren't putting in so much effort sometimes. Practice, the wheel is always there. You can always, always come back. You can always wake up because it's fundamental to who we are. So Zazen, this activity that we do together and a lot of times by ourselves, I think is kind of the heart of our practice. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about how I've kind of been relating to sitting both on the cushion and how I think sitting is kind of filtered in to my life off the cushion. And to do that, I want to share a diagram that from opening the hand of thought, I just love uh, and come back to all the time. Just this one. Um, I don't know if the Zoom folks can see it, but when we're sitting Zazen, nope, not right. Well, I'll describe it. 
when we're sitting zazen, there's this horizontal line that Uchiyama calls ZZ prime. And we get into posture, we fold our legs, we sit seiza, we sit in the chair, kind of orient our bodies. And then we try and think, no thinking. And we aim at this line, ZZ prime, just maintaining that posture. But because we're human, eventually we move off that line. And I, mean, I don't think we ever really know if we're on it in the first place. But we start thinking, thought comes up, start thinking about work, start to drift away. Um, so you can kind of see these little, these little lines coming up off of CZ prime here. Then what I kind of marked in red is this little vertical line that Ujama has drawn, drawn that's going back down to ZZ prime. So it's not just that we notice that we've started thinking and we're kind of going off into la-la land. It's after noticing that we make an effort to re-engage. You know, often I've, I've found that when I've started drifting off, my posture starts to work its way out. My shoulder drops, my head drops a little bit. And so re-engaging, we bring, come back to our posture, reset and come back at that line. And I've drawn these little arrows. That's effort, making the effort to re-engage. I mean, it's effort just to get into the posture in the first place. But and so we just we do this on the cushion. And so this is what happened. You know, this is kind of the attitude we take while we're on the cushion. And I don't want to. I won't. Following Coven's advice, I won't talk too much about shikantaza because it's indescribable. Um, but this attitude that we have during our sitting of just kind of just waking up, continuous awakening, just wake up, wake up. I wanna talk a little bit about how I think that filters out from the cushion just into our everyday experience. So I thought I'd give a, just a couple examples of some of the other folds in the eightfold path and how this attitude kind of shows up in those. First one I wanted to talk a little bit about was right view, which Mado kind of described to us as where right view is not having fixed views on anything really. And I think Uchiyama Roshi would put this in phrasing as opening the hand of thought, not getting locked in on anything. And so this kind of attitude of Zazen, you know, waking up, waking up when we drift off and coming back to our posture, opening the hand of thought, I think, applies quite nicely to right view. We notice that we start to really grasp onto something of how we think we are, how we think others are, and it's our views about anything. We can really start to get in and start discriminating, you know, this is good, this is bad, I don't like this, this is annoying, that person sucks. We can really, well, we start to suffer. So we have to, you know, and it's just so natural for our, our brains to do this. Our brains love doing this. So we have to kind of continuously put in effort to realize that we're doing that and then take our posture, open up that hand of thought. Sometimes I've found in my life that opening the hand of thought can be a lot of effort. You know, it's something sometimes you've really got that fist, just squeeze it so hard. You basically have to take a crowbar to your hand and get that hand to open up. But more often than not, when that has happened, what I've realized is 
you all of a sudden noticed just how much effort you were putting in to keep that fist closed the whole time. So all of a sudden, just whew, oh, it feels like something a weight was lifted off. You're like, oh my God, you know, I didn't realize I was carrying that around this whole time. But now all of a sudden, ah, just, you just feel this liberation. Other times, sometimes it's just, it's a real quick, just like, oh yeah, that was totally just, I totally just made an assumption there. Oops. And then it just goes right away. So there's, of course, kind of a spectrum of how this goes about. And there's no right answer of any views, but just this attitude, which is always trying to awaken, just to be open, come at things from a place of spaciousness, uh, which I think is one of the ways that Zazen starts to trickle out from the cushions. Just We just wake up, wake up. The other, some of the other folds of the Eightfold Path that this, I think, can kind of be nicely related to is right, right speech. And I think you can really kind of apply this diagram that Uchiyama has shown us in this kind of attitude to any of them. But just as an example, right speech. So we can draw a line, R, R prime, right speech, right speech prime. And there's kind of a posture that we take in right speech. Uh, which Mado told us about, which was, you know, there's the four marks that it's truthful, kind, helpful, and timely. So that's kind of the posture of right speech. So to speak. And then, you know, given given situation, we aim at that line. We we, we say something or we don't. But we're we're we aim that line and try and hit right speech. Just like in Zazen. No, I no, we can never really be certain that we hit the line. Maybe we can have some confidence that, like, okay, what I said wasn't wrong, or maybe it didn't, you know, have disastrous effects, but can never be a hundred percent certain that it was indeed right speech. But I think you can have a level of confidence about it, not necessarily intellectually, but kind of intuitive confidence that comes about um, from practice. And so we aim at this line and that line is constantly changing due to causes and conditions. It's very much a provisional line. It should be nice if it was etched in stone that we could just know, always know the right answer. Um, but we can't. So this line's always moving around. And while I think it, we might not be able to know for sure that we hit the line, I think it's much, it might be a little more easy to understand when we've missed it. It's kind of a you know feeling in your gut. It's like ooh, I, what I just said was not skillful. I just now it's not, or that did not have the effect I intended. Um, but the important thing, and I think this is one of the parts where effort comes in and opening the hand of thought and that reengaging, is it's not just that we notice. Oh, I said the wrong thing, and then. That's fine. Yeah, I just said the wrong thing. And then uh, uh, I'll just keep saying the wrong thing. I'll, I'll double down. But we make that effort to open back up, to be available with ourselves, and honest with ourselves that, oh, yeah, I, was, I just really didn't act skillfully there, which can be pretty difficult uh, to have that kind of honesty with yourself. But that is part of the effort. And then the kind of final example of the Eightfold Path of the other spokes anyway is right action, 
here there's precepts are a pretty, pretty um, big way that we, inter you know, we interact and engage with right action. And, you know, you can do that same arrow posture stuff with each of those precepts. But, and again, it's when we're working with the precepts that are kind of serving as reminders to what we would naturally do if we didn't have all these misconceptions in our head. And it's kind of our, our basic nature is these precepts is it's not just noticing, well, I told a little lie there. I, you know, I didn't, I, I spoke poorly of others. I was selfish. It's not just enough to notice that alone, especially if you don't, if you just keep, you know, I'm just going to keep lying, but putting in that effort, that those vertical lines to try and re-engage, come back, open back up. And to be honest with yourself. And some of these precepts, you know, are impossible. Tyson told us about no killing, which is no matter how you cut it, as a living being, to exist, you have to kill other things. And as Tyson mentioned, you can't kill yourself because that's still killing. You know, it's, it's this impossible task. But again, it's just like in Zazen, it's impossible to not think that's not the goal. The goal isn't to just never ever you know think again, but it's to kind of jump in before we start to discriminate, before we start to separate ourselves between you know, me and you, right and wrong, to kind of get beyond this discrimination. And I think that's kind of what the, the precepts are pointing us towards, this kind of natural behavior that we would do if we didn't have these misconceptions about small self and this separation that doesn't really exist except up here in our minds and how we, you know, it exists also just in the sense of how we interact with one one another in society. We might create a separation, but that isn't really there, but just there in our in how we act. And Mato talked a little bit about this as well in right livelihood, that even when we are seemingly doing a moral or a good profession. When you really start to get into the details, there is suffering being created somewhere in the chain. It's all the time. So these tasks, you know, to completely just become, you know, not create any suffering ever again is impossible. But we still make an effort to engage and we still make an effort to try. Uh, I think this is what Uchiyama in opening hand opening the hand of thought calls living by vow and repentance or is living by vow is acting in accordance with all beings this kind of this universe self that we're all a part of and you know this is the precept of kind of reminders of how we can do that but then inevitably we fail we can't do that because we're human and just some of these things are just impossible tasks, but we have to, Uchiyama uses the word repentance, um, repent. If I could be so bold as to inject my own feeling about that word, that I, I, don't, I don't love that word. Uh, it has a bit of a, at least in our, in our culture, it has a bit of a stigma. It's, I don't like, it doesn't feel quite right. So I've been trying to use the word re-engage. We just 
re, you know, just re-engage, put in that energy, turn, keep the wheel turning, come back to what is already there. And then, yes, that repentance or re-engaging is kind of the, the activity that we do to just, I want to say reconnect, but reconnect kind of implies that there's a disconnect at some point, which even if we're not acting in accordance with all beings all the time, we're still all connected. And so maybe we'll just put up some barriers in our mind that create kind of an artificial separation. But this idea that Coben reminded us of is that this opening the hand of thought or continuous awakening, actualizing what we are, and that is intimately connected, dependent, and actualized by everything around us. We're part of this system. So we need reminders to kind of act in accordance with that. So if we look at the spoke of right effort itself, I was trying to think about what are maybe some aspects of right effort that we look at, maybe that posture that we're kind of talking about in that CZ prime diagram. And one that came up that I came across when kind of reading about it was, I think, come around, fits in quite nicely with our practices just enough. This idea of taking, you know, having just enough. So just enough effort. Buddha kind of likened it to tightening a stringed instrument. You tighten it too much, it's not gonna sound very nice and it might, strings might start to break. But if you leave it too loose, then that's also not so good. And so there is no concrete, you know, this is what right effort is. There's no you know, fixed standard. So in everyone's life, based on the causes and conditions, amount of effort that you can put into your practice will vary. And, you know, and everyone's different, even within your you know, own life, this will change. And so the, just kind of, I think there's another line we can kind of get from Dogen, which is what he says is that it's important in our practice. What's important in our practice isn't the depth or the shallowness of the Dharma but rather having a genuine practice. I paraphrased a little bit there, but um, this idea of having just a genuine practice, it's not, you don't have to know every sutra in the canon. You don't have to sit 10 hours a day. You don't have to be a great master or anything like that, but just having a genuine practice. And again, there's no fixed definition of what genuine is, but being genuine with yourself and just having a sincere effort as to what you can do in a given moment. And I mean, this is another part where coming at it from this openness and honesty with ourselves, which would be pretty hard is you can, you can, maybe you don't know if you're putting in the right effort, but I think you can kind of tell when oh, I'm really not putting in effort right now. I can, I can, I can tell. But at the same time, when we really uh, deluded ourselves, it can be helpful to have a teacher to maybe throw throw a bucket of cold water over our, over our heads to you know say wake up, put in more. You know you're not you're not really sit you're not sitting. You're kind of deluding yourself that we're that you're just no you know I'll just take a break for a little while and I won't put in the effort and oh it'll be okay I'll give myself a little bit of a break. 
again, not, not, not necessarily a bad thing, but put in too much slack, that stringed instrument starts to not sound so good anymore. So I think just kind of having a genuine and sincere effort is a mark of right effort. And the other ones that kind of kind of came up for me that I've been thinking about a little bit are doubt and trust. Kind of are also pretty important in our practice. And that this idea of just enough comes into play again, having just enough doubt, just enough trust. So if we take a look at doubt, you have too little doubt can become quite arrogant, potentially. And you think, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm enlightened. I know, you know, I understand everything. I'm good to go. I'm the next Buddha. I'll see you all at Nirvana. We'll check back in later. So that's, you know, you can, if you have not enough doubt, just, yeah, I don't need to practice. I got it all figured out. Another kind of flavor of not having enough doubt is just taking anything someone else says without questioning it, without investigating it for yourself. Just, oh, they said I'm enlightened. Cool. I'll take their word for it. <laughs> this is one that um, can kind of spin the other way as well with if you have too much doubt, why even bother to practice? Like, I don't believe. I doubt, you know, no way. I can't, I can't liberate myself from suffering. I'm not even going to bother. You kind of create a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I mean, one that I struggle with from time to time is this idea that we're all, we all have Buddha nature and that we're all, you know, at our core, just as an enlightened being. You know, I kind of think, you know, Meadows told us this, Coben's told us, many others and teachers have told us. Dogen told us, Buddha himself said the same thing. It's, you know, all these people say this and still like, mm, enlightenment's other people. You know, Buddha nature, that's other people. If anything, I'm the exception that proves the rule that everyone else has Buddha nature but me. That's too much doubt. And so just enough doubt. And that's part of that sincerity, I think, is doubt. Doubt a little bit. But, but... At the same time, having trust is also a very important part of our practice. Having trust that we really do have Buddha nature, that at our basic level is this awakened human that we all have inside of us. We have to trust what the Dharma, we have to trust the Dharma, trust our teachers, trust the Sangha and each other. And then, yeah, trust yourself, which can be pretty difficult. I think that's the hardest one. So I think the trust and doubt can kind of be wrapped up as trust, but verify. So you trust the Dharma, trust your teachers, trust the Sangha. You have that trust of your innate awakened being that is within all of us. Trust but verify. Mm -hmm.